I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. The world is a brutish and scary place, and the search for meaning and purpose can be very dispiriting sometimes. And if you have a connection with another human being and it is not hurting anyone, then I don't see why, because of some kind of made-up rule, that you should cut them out of your life. And I don't intend on doing that. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Well, it's our final episode of season six, the last chapter in our series of stories about rules in love and relationships and the people who break them. Today, it's our turn to break the rules. We're going to veer from our usual format and tell this story with a little help from some friends. Jessie Baker is the host of a podcast called This Is Dating. She and her team set up real people on real dates and record them. Listeners then get to follow along through every awkward, nervy, cringy, hopeful moment. Jesse's goal is to make good matches, and in doing so, give people a window into what dating is truly like in 2022. For this episode of Love Letters, we're partnering with Jesse and her production crew at Magnificent Noise to bring you the story of one of those daters. His name is Manny. My name is Manny Acutiel. I'm 32 years old. I live in the greatest city in America, San Francisco. And I have an amazing life here. I own and operate my own small business, brick and mortar. It's called Manny's. And it is a civic and community space that hosts programming around politics, social justice, and civic life, also with arts and culture. I come from the world of campaigns and politics. I was on the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign, and I worked in the same-sex marriage and immigration reform movements. We'll return to Manny's backstory a bit later. First, let's hear briefly from Jesse Baker and producer Huete Gatana from This Is Dating on how they found Manny, why they chose him for their show, and, of course, about the date they set him up on. It was with a guy named Aziz. Why did we choose Manny? The best setups are often a friend of a friend or a cousin of a friend or, you know, a colleague of a colleague, something, you know. Exactly. And I remember calling Manny and we had 30 minutes for a screening call and I fell in love at like minute two because he was just so charming and was so easily able to express where he was at and what he wanted. And as he proved at the very beginning of the date, he was up for anything. You know, we started the date, we gave them an improv situation and that's how we introduced the two of them. And they both like 
immediately played along, got into it. And then when we were done, they asked for another one. And Manny did not know that Aziz actually does improv for a living. So we set that up to make Aziz look good, but Manny really shined. So we thought to kind of break the ice and to give you two a chance to kind of rewrite how you met. We're going to start with a little bit of improv. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. No one's running away. So um, we're going to give you a situation and it's your job to kind of go with it. Great. Okay. Aziz, you're at your nephew's high school graduation and it's crazy loud. Your family's, your whole big extended family's out there and they are throwing a big party. There's music, there's food. It's awesome. But Manny lives next door and it's too loud for him. And it's always too loud. And every weekend you guys are doing something in the backyard and he is fucking over it. So he comes to the door. You got your whole family you're trying to process in the backyard. And uh, here's Manny knocking. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, hi, how can I help you? Uh, I'm so sorry to do this. I know that we we keep talking about this, but it's, it's just so loud back there. And I don't wanna be that guy that's like making your life so difficult by, have, by saying how loud it is. Then but, don't be that guy, come in here and join us. Jeremy just graduated. We're so proud of him. I want to, but... Um, my pet parrot is having a migraine and I really feel bad for it. And I don't want it to die. Um, oh my God. So, as much as I want to celebrate with Jeremy, uh, I have to take care of my parrot. I'm so sorry. What is your parents, your parrot's name? Um, Lucy. Lucy. Um, it sounds like what Lucy needs is some quiet. Is that right? Because we actually have a soundproof um, scream room in Jeremy's apartment. If maybe you want to put Lucy there and then you can come hang out with us. It's not a bad idea at all. I could definitely do that. Um, well, maybe we try that. And if uh, it doesn't help, maybe we could just turn it down just a little bit. You know what? I'm, I'm going to tell my family to calm it down regardless. Cause they can get a little hyphy and I feel like they, you know, if, if not you and Lucy, there's probably some other neighbor that's not saying something. So let, I'm going to ask them to turn it down a little bit, but um, I think you should, you should join us and maybe, um, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like fun. And so love- there's some good comedic chemistry between Aziz and Manny. As their date goes on, they're both pretty open and relaxed with each other. Here's Aziz asking Manny a question. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of getting to a point where I'm no longer desirable and I haven't found a partner yet. Hmm. And I think in our community, that is like a real thing. And it's, it's everyone loves you, but like then you're like, everyone loves you in the gay community and you get attention and then you stop because you've passed the gay death. And I guess I'm, yeah, I, I, that's probably not something I would want someone to know because you want to be confident. You want to be like, yeah, I don't, you know, whatever. But the truth is, is that there is anxiety in me and, and, and a lot of my friends who are still single and gay that like, if you, if you do start becoming less desirable in the way you look in the gay community, it is much harder to find partnership. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone struggles with that. And that is like our version of the biological clock. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think admitting your like needs and fears is kind of sexy also. I, I feel that. Unfortunately, Manny and Aziz did not progress beyond that first date. However charming it may have seemed, there was not enough of a spark. But Jesse and Huete say they're still determined to find Manny a good match. They're not done trying to help him. We need more Manny in our life. We want to figure out how to keep him around because he is so much fun. And even though it didn't, Manny's date didn't end in a yes, it landed in a date number two with us. I'm not his type. (laughs) Neither am I. Now it's our turn to dive more deeply into Manny's story. Because Manny's romantic life has had many chapters leading up to that date with Aziz. Including one chapter that happens to fit with this season's rule-breaking theme pretty well. To understand why, we first need to rewind back to 1990s Los Angeles. I grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish family, but my mother was the main breadwinner of the family. She's a bankruptcy lawyer. My father uh, is a helicopter mechanic from Afghanistan. And they married when they were in their late 30s, had me in their early 40s. So they were a little bit older than the typical religious Jewish parents. If I asked you to sort of characterize your early romantic life, when did it all begin? My early connection to romance elicited a lot of fear because... I was romantically interested in the wrong kind of people. Being a yeshiva boy and having crushes on other yeshiva boys is not a safe thing to have happen. I remember going to Jew camp in in the summer, sleepaway camp, and thinking, oh no, this is going to be a problem. For the first group of years that I started having feelings towards other men, I tried to stop those feelings, change those feelings, pray them away, hope that they might go away. And so my connection to my early sexuality was dangerous and scary for me. It wasn't really until I left Los Angeles and came out of the closet and went to college on the East Coast that I started really creating a new relationship with my sexuality, my feelings, and my early romances. After high school, Manny enrolls at Williams College, a small liberal arts school in Western Massachusetts. He finds the dating pool there very limited. While visiting a friend at another college, he has an early brief romance. He was a cross-country runner, and um, we had a very romantic set of, you know, first meetups. And it was in the early days of Facebook where you just were able to start sending messages. So we would send these long, romantic love messages to each other over Facebook. We thought we were so cool. Manny is pretty politically active on campus at Williams. He's co-president of the student body. Literally, the morning after graduation in 2011, he starts work as a summer intern in the Obama White House. And then, in late summer, Manny leaves on a trip that will change his life. He wins a coveted international fellowship from the Thomas J. Watson Foundation. This gives him the opportunity to study LGBT rights movements in six countries over the course of the next year. You have to be alone for all 12 months. You can't come back home at all. You can't go to any country you've ever been to. 
So it's a year of discomfort, which is supposed to both facilitate transformation and also try to create a cohort of more active participants in the world community, really trying to kind of branch Americans out to see the rest of the world. The idea of the fellowship is you don't stay in any one place for too long. Time doesn't allow you to get settled anywhere. Manny starts out in England, then spends three months in India. He helps organize a pride parade in Bangalore. Next, he lands in Australia, which is in the middle of a years-long debate over legalizing same-sex marriage. Pretty soon after Manny gets there, something big happens. I organized my trip so that I'd be in each of these countries around Pride time. And so I was there for Melbourne Pride. I had seen a poster somewhere that they were looking for volunteers. They gave us ribbons to sell to random people to basically, for charity, for the, for, to help support the Pride organization. And I saw this young man sitting under a tree in this park alone, reading a book. And I walked right up to him and I didn't introduce myself. I just said, hey, what are you reading? And he looked up at me and said, Nietzsche. And he showed me the book. And I said, well, I need you to help me sell these ribbons. I can be persuasive. And I didn't really give him much of a choice. And to his credit, he closed the book and stood up. And he basically kept me company while I walked around to random people and sold ribbons to them. And that's how I met Dale. Manny is pretty smitten with Dale, right from the start. Dale is a bit thin, brown hair, beautiful eyes. He has kind of like olive features, my height, kind of 5'10", 5'11". Erudite, very beautiful, very, very intelligent, has big lips. But Manny tells himself, don't be so easy. Don't let Dale see how gaga you are. Then I was like, well, it was nice meeting you, and I walked away. And he walked away. And I was like, Manny, don't give him your number. Don't turn around. You know, like, stay strong. And I kept walking and I kept walking. And then I looked back, and I saw that he looked back. And then he turned around and started walking back towards me. And I turned around and started walking back towards him. And then he said, can I get your number? I said, sure. I'm trying not to faint from, I'm trying not to swoon. Okay, so he did the thing, he got your number. And at this point, how much time do you have left? Like how, how soon into- Just the beginning. This, just the beginning, so you had time. I had time, but I didn't tell him when I was gonna leave. I kept it a secret. Manny and Dale fall pretty hard for each other. I'd never felt this strongly about another man ever. And I just remember crying a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I don't even know why I cried so much. It felt like my heart had exited my body and was in my hands. And he was like squeezing it really hard. And it felt so strange to have my heart outside my body in this stranger's possession. They go to concerts together. They visit Dale's hometown outside of Melbourne. They rent a little blue car and drive to the capital, Canberra, to watch Question Time in the Australian Parliament. It is all very romantic and beautiful. But for Manny, it's tinged with sadness, because he knows he has to leave Australia soon. And Dale, remember, does not know this. He knew that I had to go at some point, but I didn't tell him when until I think maybe a couple of days before. 
because I didn't want him to basically not invest in me out of fear of hurting himself. I mean, it seems like the timeline led to the intensity, too, of also what you were feeling, right? The better it got, the more fraught it might have become knowing you were, you know, knowing there was a clock, you know, ticking. I didn't want to fuck it up. Like, I didn't, I, and then also it was hard to parse out my feelings. Like, how much of this is the kind of romance of, wow, I met someone, but I'm leaving, so it's, we got to get it in. And I also couldn't force it because he didn't know when I was leaving. So I kept wanting to see him more and more and more, but I didn't want to seem too overeager. And I didn't know if, because I'd never felt this way before, I didn't know what my feelings, what they meant. And so it was all very confusing to me. Toward the end of his time in Australia, Manny decides he must visit Uluru, this giant monolith way out in the middle of the Australian outback. So I rented a car and I put an ad on on Gumtree, which is their version of Craigslist, because I needed people to share the gas and share the car with me. And I found three random people, one of whom didn't even speak English. It was an Italian man with curly hair that spoke not one word of English. And I picked up these three strangers and we drove for two and a half weeks through the outback. I shaved my head and... All I could think about the whole trip was Dale. And finally, it became so overbearing that in this town called Cooper Petty, I think it was, in the middle of nowhere, an opal mining town, I had to find a payphone to call him just so that I could hear his voice. And um, I called him, and I was crying, of course, and I put the payphone down, and I cried in that payphone booth in the middle of the outback with no hair, and I was like, this is real. This is a real feeling. It's a real feeling, but Manny has to continue his fellowship. It's time for the next destination, China. The night before Manny departs Australia, Dale gives him a framed photograph of the two of them. It shows them kissing under an umbrella at Mardi Gras in Sydney. They hadn't really talked about what was going to happen next, whether they would stay in touch or whether this three-month love affair would stand on its own, like a dream. When Manny leaves, he's a total wreck. And I remember arriving in Beijing, and it was smoggy and dirty and gross, and I got into this random apartment in the middle of this giant city, and I just sat on the edge of my friend's bed and held this frame and cried for a long time. And then just kept going. I thought I'd probably never see or talk to Dale again. Little did he know. Manny's story continues after this short break. Okay, we're back. Manny told me that he's been carrying a portable speaker around with him ever since he was in high school. It gives his days a soundtrack, he says, because he wants his life to have a cinematic quality. So picture the scene of Manny flying away from Australia away from Dale, with no plan about what happens to their relationship. No real conversation about what comes next. That was 11 years ago. You know, a lot's happened in 11 years. What I remember is there was a period in the beginning where we we didn't talk for a while. And the tools of technology made it easier and easier for us to you know, check in, communicate, see how things were going. And I think where it kind of settled in the beginning was we both became 
places of support and security for each other when we needed them. Like when I was going through something, either a bad breakup or a job transition, or when I moved to San Francisco for the first time, I would check in with Dale and ask his advice. We had this familiarity with each other that while we were not romantic, that familiarity maintained, it, it continued, where I just feel like he knew me. He, he knew what I was about. He saw a version of me in Australia, a vulnerable version of me that not a lot of people have seen. And he, I, I mean, whenever he was going through stuff, he would reach out to me. And so we just became pen pals, basically. This correspondence between Manny and Dale, it becomes regular, like super regular, every day regular. And this raises the relationship rule that Manny is kind of sort of breaking. The one that says, you'll never get over an ex without making a clean break, without putting some distance between that life and your new life. Talking every day, that's not exactly putting distance anywhere. Now, technically, you could argue that Dale isn't Manny's ex, because it's not like they had some big breakup. But as time goes on, it becomes clear that their lives will remain on separate tracks. Dale in Australia, Manny in San Francisco. Being together isn't really an option. I'm not moving to Australia. I work in American politics. I'm on the board of our public transit system. I own a brick and mortar business. Honey, I'm here. I'm staying in this country. This is my career. One day, five or six years ago, Manny gets a cockamamie idea. His words. He'll fly to Australia the next day and just show up on Dale's doorstep to surprise him. Both of them are starting to date other people at this time. And that wasn't the point. I wasn't going to Australia to, like, get back together with Dale. It just, for some reason, I was like, I need to do this. Let's just do this. I'm tired of waiting. I want to see Dale. Manny conspires with a mutual friend in Melbourne to make sure Dale will be at home when Manny gets there. Dale opens the door. He sees Manny before him and gets emotional. The first thing he said was, no one has ever done something this grand for me before. Dale grew up in tough circumstances. In tough circumstances financially, familially, you know, in not the greatest part of Australia. I mean, he's had, he had a tough upbringing and he was able to pull himself up. He got a degree, got a law degree and a philosophy degree, and now is a lawyer and he's able to really change his circumstances. And I think just to have someone do quite that much just to see him was a bit overwhelming for him in a positive way. But I'm sure it was confusing too, right? Because you show up and regardless of your intentions, you're looking at this person who has metaphorically held your heart in his hands. So how do you experience that, but keep him in a certain column in your life? Yeah, it was confusing. And honestly, it wasn't even the best trip ever because he was like, I'm so glad you're here and I'm kind of dating someone. And I'm like, that's okay. I'm also kind of dating someone. We don't need to do anything. I'm not here like with any assumptions. But we ended up making time for each other. We had a bunch of meals and then we ended up going on a road trip down the Great Ocean Road, which is beautiful, uh, and stayed in the cabin. And it was kind of awkward because we wanted to be romantic, but also felt, and this has kind of been our thing over the last 11 years is, the timing has never been right. It's just never worked. A couple years after that, he did come to San Francisco, and it also was the wrong timing. He had just started dating this other guy. And so it's almost like fate has laughed at us. Like, it gets a chuckle out of us every time. So there was an awkwardness about it. 
But there was also a sweetness, and I'm really glad I did it. Part of it also is, I want to be the kind of person that does that, because it's so easy to turn your blinders on and your heart off, and to just get tunnel vision into whatever it is you're supposed to be doing that day, that month, whatever your professional goals are. I never want to lose that. One of Manny's relationships at home is a pretty serious one. He falls in love with a ballet dancer. They're together for three and a half years. I traveled all over the world with him on tour with his his company and basically became part of the company in a way. It was a very romantic, very tumultuous, very stormy love. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. A lot of, you know, fights in the streets of Paris and breakups and crying. And, and I don't regret it. Um, we broke up many times. I finally ended it because I felt like the kind of person that I wanted to be, I couldn't become with him as my partner. Talking to Dale about all of this is complicated. On one hand, many relies on Dale for love and support. But he also doesn't want to hurt Dale. There's a balance between cluing him into my life and also exposing him to pain by getting him into the inner workings of my own romance and love and relationship. So we did a whole episode the first season, I think, of this podcast about whether people should talk to exes and sort of what it does to you and what it might prevent you from doing or what it might hold you back from doing. And obviously, there are no universal rules. But I want to talk about how keeping him in your life has both helped and been a support system, but also maybe has been in a place where someone else might go. And that might not be true. So I'd love to get your take on that, sort of like how how you've been able to keep in touch and maybe sort of break that rule and the ups and downs of that. It's a concern of mine. And there have been times where, because of that concern, I've cut off our communication to kind of keep moving. So I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if Dale is a crutch to me emotionally and that I don't know if our connection's holding me back from finding love here or if that isn't what it's doing and it's more innocuous. If, if really he's, he's just a man in my life giving me love and support and I him and we're close friends and it's a, it is a relationship of mutual support. I mean, there's a consistency. You know, we really do talk almost every day and we have for a very long time. I almost don't care at this point. Because even if he's holding me back from finding love right now, having someone who's there for me pretty much whenever I need him to be is just so grounding. And he really believes in me. Like, he believes that I'm going to be able to do whatever I want to do. And that is awesome. At one point, Manny is talking to a behavioral scientist for a virtual event. And she tells him, look... It would be healthier if you just let go of this thing with Dale. And I said, you know, I think it would be good if we take a break and stop talking for a little bit to see if things change for me. Like if all of a sudden my heart feels more open and if I, you know, men start coming into my life and I can accept their love. I was kind of like, you know, when you, you're not sure if you're like allergic to eggs or whatever and you like take it out of your diet to see if like your eczema goes away. I took the eggs away for a little bit to see if like all of a sudden my heart was different. And? What we realized was like there are certain things that we were doing 
that were unhealthy in our conversations and certain words we were using and things we were saying and, you know, that kind of thing that were veering into the wrong way to is that have that connection and that there needed to be some kind of boundaries, uh, emotional boundaries between us, but that it was that the connection itself was not causing a lot of harm. One ground rule they come up with. How about let's not call each other when we're drunk? For instance, let's say I was feeling lonely because of something that didn't have to do with him. And I thought, well, I know what'll make me feel not lonely. It'll be to call Dale and get him to like say that he wants to be with me. Well, that's not really fair because Dale's in a relationship right now with a man who loves him. And like me getting a dose of Dale to feel less lonely is not necessarily fair to his life. And so really being conscious of those moments and not taking advantage of our connection in that way. Manny says that when he's with his close friends, they can tell when Dale calls because Manny's body language changes noticeably. But outside of that group, Manny says, he doesn't talk much about Dale. He keeps it private. If someone does ask about him, Manny will say, Dale's probably the guy I'll marry someday. It's hard to tell if he's joking. What does it mean to be done with someone? I'm not done with Dale. He's not done with me. The experience of being alive is a lonely one. And when you find a heart connection with someone and you don't have to give it up, I think it's a tragedy to do it. Not all exes are built alike. My relationship with Dale is without pain. I'm not lying at home, you know, awake at night, feeling a deep sadness that Dale isn't here. I'm not having sex and wishing it was Dale. Like, you know, he, is, he does not withdraw from my lived experience. He only adds at this point. This summer, Manny and Dale have tentative plans to rendezvous in London. I was thinking yesterday, like, what's it going to be like when I see him again, you know? Where will we meet up? What will it be like to, to see him again physically? So I think about him, but... It's the same kind of daydreaming that we do about all sorts of things. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And I don't know if I'll make it to July. But if I'm lucky enough to make it to July, and I'm lucky enough to be able to get on a plane, and he's lucky enough to get on a plane too, and we're there together, then my at least my hope is that I'll be present. And that I won't waste those moments thinking about what I've done or what I should do or what we should be, but... Ultimately, like, my perspective at this point on life is, like, if we can just be as present as possible and just appreciate the time we have, then we'll have done it right. Thank you, Manny, so much for telling this story. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for holding it. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman, with help from Jesse Baker and Huete Gatana. For more on their show, This Is Dating, visit thisisdatingpodcast.com. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. 
Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter, we are an advice column, to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm a half Afghan, half Polish religious gay Jew. That's so many things. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. I'm just, I'm just, Jew, I'm just Jewish. <laughs> that's, that's, that's okay. All I got. Well, Paul's... Listen, we'll take what we can get. That's okay. I accept right? you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.